product of an invitation. Uh, my mom and dad were in town this weekend and got to go to a Preds game. That's what's most important, right? The big win last night. But um, we were in town, and last week, I don't know how many of you follow Wellhouse on social media, but we had just put out like a little short video that just said, hey, we want you to invite somebody this week. And my mom had seen the video. She watches all my stuff. In fact, if you look down at the bottom, it says 559 views. 558 of those are probably my mom. She just watches them over and over and over again. But um, she said, Jason, you know that you're a product of invitation, right? And I said, no, didn't you? Like, weren't you like with God in the garden? You know, I just thought, Mom, you've always been a Christian, right? And she said, no. I had no idea. I'm 41 years old. had no concept. And so this is what she said. She said, yeah. She said, when I was 17 or 18 years old, a neighbor stopped by and said, hey, if you ever want to go to church, let me know. I would love to, to go. And so he finally broke my mom down, who, again, wasn't a believer, wasn't a church person. And so my mom went to church, this little country church in Kentucky, and guess who was teaching the Bible class? My dad. He was 19, and so he was doing like a young adult for the three young adults that were there. And uh, my mom sat in that class and fell in love with my dad, but she fell in love with Jesus. And so you fast forward through time, here I stand, and I'm a product of invitation. So guys, invitation matters, and you may think that it doesn't, and you may think it's risky, you may think it's weird or awkward, but here's the thing, it's Easter. Everybody, I think, is okay with and expects and, you know, will be kind even in the refusal or the, the turning down of an invitation. So take an opportunity to do that this week. And, and again, like Leanne said, just pray about it. You know, there's got to be somebody in your life or an opportunity that will come your way. And, and here's what I pray for. I pray that you invite someone who meets Jesus or maybe they meet their spouse. And then 40 years from now or 41 years from now, there's a guy who is standing where I'm standing because you invited somebody in 2019. That's my prayer. And so take an opportunity to do that this week. And again, we've made it easy. Take a card. But you know what? If a card's not your thing, shoot a text. You know, peek over the cubicle wall and say, hey, I don't know what you got going on Sunday, but I'd love to have you come and, and visit church with me. And uh, let's just see what God will do. All you got to do is open your mouth and God will do the rest. And so uh, I, I found, too, that people will come and be a part of something where they feel safe. And this is a safe environment for them. There's going to be no judgment. There's going to be no expectation. We're going to preach a message of hope next week, and we're going to share some time in community, and then we're just going to kind of turn that over to God and watch what he does with the seeds that you guys plant this week. So anyway, Easter next week. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into our last. This has been an awesome series. We've been in a series called Playlist, and what we've been looking at is these different psalms. Uh, all written by David, but these psalms, which are just songs, they were set to music, kind of like we set up a playlist to work out to, or we set a playlist up to, you know, have a romantic dinner, whatever your playlist are, that God, too, has provided this playlist, and it covers every single uh, area of our life, and I'm going to tell you, today is a heavy one, but it is a light one, and I know that doesn't make sense. But just kind of follow along because it's going to hit everybody in here either currently or some moment in the past or some moment in the future. Uh, so we kind of save the best one for last. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll get going. Father, today we uh, just pray a blessing over this psalm. We pray that you uh, show life, that God, you bring light into darkness, that God, you would unchain, you would unleash Today, some, some people's minds and hearts and beings, that God, today you would work through our body, our mind, our spirit 
to provide rescue, to provide forgiveness, to provide this, this shacklement, God, that has so many of us just strangled and crippled. So God, would you work today through an ancient song, a song that was birthed and penned and written and played out of some, some real turmoil. So God, I pray again that you would breathe life into this text and that you would breathe life into our spirits today as we finish up playlist looking at Psalm 51. And we pray this through your son's name. Amen. What do you do with guilt? What do you do with shame? And what do you do with fear? that is kind of birthed from or is associated with guilt and shame. How do you process those things? How do you deal with those? Especially when the guilt and shame and then fear that is connected to those things is brought on by something you did, a mistake that you made, a sin that you committed, to use kind of a church word with it. What do you do with these things when you are kind of at fault? When you've been the one who's kind of guilty of doing something and now all of a sudden that stuff has come to life and now you are just like a tidal wave. It's just like sitting all over you, shame, fear, and guilt. What do you do with that? I remember one of the first times in my life where guilt and shame entered into my life where it completely crippled me. Now, I had been in trouble before. I knew what punishment looked like. I knew what being guilty looked like. But I had never really emotionally connected with some of those things that are a little bit heavier that connect with that. And I remember I was probably about seven or eight years old. And again, this was a foreign feeling. It was such a heavy feeling. I didn't know what to do with it. I had never you know, dealt with anything like this. And so what sat on me this afternoon at my grandmother's house was this massive, it was like a thousand pound weight that just sat of disappointment, guilt, shame, fear. And so here's what it was all birthed from. I had gotten a slingshot after months of begging for one. I had tried to build one, and, you know, it it just wasn't working. And so I had finally gotten a really nice slingshot. And I was at my grandmother's, and there was a wooded area in the back of my grandparents' place. And so there was plenty of opportunity to do all sorts of things with a slingshot as a 7-year-old. And so I remember my cousin and I went back there, and we just went to town. We'd set up cans, and we had found some old coffee cans in a storage unit of my granddad's, and we had just, you know, we, we were seeing, like, you know, we were playing cops and robbers, and we were, you know, we, the, the, the forest was just a, a field of possibilities, right, as a seven-year-old. And so we are knocking down cans, and we are just going to town, like I said, and then something caught our eye. And I remember that my mom gave me two rules She said, Jason, you have two rules, two. Can you remember these two? One, don't aim it toward people. She named, don't aim it toward your sister. And don't aim it toward the house or cars. That was the two rules. Everything else was open game. And something caught our eye. And my grandparents had this old musky basement. Anybody else's grandparents? I think every grandparent has to have that. But outside, there was uh, this old kind of porch. And out at the end, underneath the carport, was this, like, cellar. Dirt floor. They would store canned goods. And my, my granddad had some tools and stuff in there. And it was this old musky. And it was center block. And so I noticed that crawling up the side of this center block was a lizard. 
And I thought, you know what, I bet I can nail this lizard. And it's center block, right? I mean, what's a rock, what's a pebble going to do? And so I remember rearing back, and boom, missed him. But he didn't move. And I knew how close, and so what do you do? You make the adjustment. And so I kind of adjusted down and reared back, and boom. And I got within a couple of inches of him, and he scattered up the wall a little bit. And I thought, this time, he's all mine. And so I reared back one more time, and I must have angled or slipped, because it wasn't my fault. But something happened, and boom. And right at the top of the wall, the size of of just one single center block, was a small window that let some light into that little, that little room. And that rock goes through and And I remember straight panic. And so I'm like, maybe it's a small window. Maybe if we clean up all the glass, no one will notice. So we clean up the glass, and we go inside, make sure we clean up all the glass. And then what we do is we run inside through the basement. My grandparents had a TV down there. And so we ran, and we slid the slingshot under the couch cushions because out of sight, out of mind, right? And we turned on the TV, and we just sat there in anticipation. 30 minutes goes by, hour goes by, what seemed like four days. And I remember hearing the door to the basement open several hours later, and I could hear every creak of the stairs. That's way slower in my mind than what actually happened. But my mom comes down the stairs, and she turns the corner and sees the TV, and she goes, what are you guys doing inside? Why aren't you outside? We're like, wow, what's outside? (laughs) We're tired. We just wanted to watch some TV. And she goes, well, you guys aren't sitting down here all day. It's a nice day out. You need to get out. And we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll get back out in just a second. And so my mom kind of leaves me and goes back upstairs. Another hour goes by. Mom comes back down. What are you guys still doing? And she stops. She goes, what would y'all do? <laughs> it's like my mom knows me or something, right? My mom still asks me that. I'm 41. She'll still call. What would you do? We're like, nothing. And I remember like a tear because I'm sensitive, and this tear starting to drop down. And she said, what'd you do? And she pulled it out of me. Well, we were trying, and, and, and you know, and, and, and I didn't mean to. It was, it was the lizard's fault. He climbed up there by the window, and, and then she quoted scripture to me. <laughs> she said, were you going to try it? And then she quoted numbers. She said, you know, Jason, your sins will find you out. You can't hide from, I was like, I know. And this is what she told me. She said, you know, you've got to go upstairs and tell your grandparents. I sat there a few minutes, and like I said, it was like a tidal wave. I began to feel guilt. Oh, what have I done? I began to feel shame because I was hiding it. And I began to feel fear, the fear of disappointing my grandparents the fear of getting a switch took to my rear. I didn't know what was going to come. So finally, after a while, after mom had pulled it out of me, I had reconciled that, you know what, i got to take care of this. And I'm going to tell you something. If I never felt those feelings again, it would have been okay. But that's not life. 
I'd like to tell you that I've not made a mistake since then, but that wouldn't be true if I broke that window this last week. We make mistakes. We mess up. I don't know about you, but in my life, I've got so many. It's not that I just can't count them. I don't even remember some of them. There are times that somebody will remind you. Remember when you, and I, no, I had no clue. I'm sorry. I know it's been 32 years, but I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. There are things I don't even remember anymore. And what happens with all of those things, those memories, if we don't process well through them, here's what happens. It brings with it, it drags with it some of the same guilt and shame and discouragement as if it was day one, as if it had just happened. And those mo- emotions of discouragement, they cripple. They paralyze us. And if they're left un, uh, undealt with, if they continue to linger around, and some of you have been dealing with some things that you've left just kind of unresolved, lingering around. And here's what happens. They become damaging. They begin to damage our own view of ourselves. They begin to, to damage our view of God. They begin to damage relationships. They begin to damage our own self-worth. We begin to say, you know what, maybe I'm just not worth it. Maybe God can't do anything. I don't know why I would ever extend that, that element of forgiveness out or ask. It can't be reciprocated. And so what happens is something back here begins to damage the present, and it begins to damage the future. And so here we go. It's this cycle. And so David pours out his heart in Psalm 51 because he's made a mistake. He has shot the window out. I'm not sure that he meant to or if things happened, but he shot the window out. And here he sits and he has some decisions to make. There's been some things that have been brought to light. His mom has made the way down the stairs and looked him in the eyes and he's got to deal with some things. So here's the background real quick on Psalm 51. The story behind Psalm 51 actually takes place in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we see a young man named David who is king. And he's out on his balcony and he sees a young lady who is bathing. And he doesn't just see, he looks. Then he turns looking into obsession and then he turns obsession into opportunity. And so he sends word, and he says, I want to know who this lady is. She's caught my eye. And so they come back, and they say, well, that is Bathsheba. That is the wife of Uriah, one of your soldiers. He says, bring her to me. Instead of walking away, he says, bring her to me. And so, again, he's king, so he kind of has, you know, authority and has his way, and so they end up sleeping together. She becomes pregnant. So he panics. And here's what happens. When we try to cover up one sin, it just leads to another. And so now this thing snowballs. And so he, he devises a plan by which he can hide it. And so he says, here's what I'll do. I need Uriah, who was at battle at the time, bring him home. So they bring Uriah home, and here's, here's what he's hoping. He's going to give him some paid time off, go home, eat, drink, be merry, but most of all, make love to your wife. That's what I need to happen. Well, Uriah says, and this tells you the character of Uriah, Uriah says, I can't do that. I can't go home and act like nothing's happening. My men, my cohorts, my fellow soldiers are on, are on battle. I can't do that. So he sleeps at the door of the palace. And so David gets word of this and says, listen, this guy has to go home. So David gets him drunk. And so, again, he says, I can't do it. So he sleeps. He's not budging. And so David says, okay, well, I'll deal with it a different way. 
So he goes to his commander and he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to send Uriah back to battle, but I need you to put him at the front of the line. And then when they begin to attack, I need you to retreat and leave him standing there by himself so that he gets killed. So sure enough, that's what happens. Uriah left, standing by himself, and cut down. So they send word back to David and said, hey, Uriah, the Hittite is dead. So instead of feeling relief, you know what David does? David says, well, bring Bathsheba back to me. And he marries her. Taking what this other guy had. While taking his life. And so here at this point, he feels like, you know what? I've gotten away with this. After all, I'm king. I mean, it's not like anyone could or would hold me accountable or anything. I don't have to worry about anything. No one's going to challenge me. My status is such that I have nothing to worry about. And then he has a friend named Nathan come to him. And God sends Nathan. And so Nathan comes to him, who is a prophet and a friend of David. And he says, hey, David, I got a story I want to tell you. I got wind of something that I think is really unjust that's happened. So he tells him a story about a a guy who is poor and a guy who is rich. And the rich guy has all sorts of cattle and sheep and just wealth galore. And then this poor man has one ewe lamb, one small lamb. And the rich guy has someone come and visit. And so he says, oh, I've got to prepare a feast for this visitor, for this guest of mine. So instead of going out into his field and getting one of his prized sheep, he says, no, I want the sheep of this fellow peasant at the edge of town. So he steals that sheep, and he cooks it up, and he serves it to his dinner guest. And it says that David threw a fit. It says that David was outraged. He says, where did this happen? This guy has to be dealt with. In fact, this is what David says. Let's execute him. And David stands there as Nathan looks him in the eyes and says, David, you're the man. You're the man. David's eyes was opened. And David, just like sitting on a couch with a slingshot under the cushion, begins to feel this weight of guilt, shame. And even as king, fear. And so he begins to process through these things. And so what we see after some endless days and sleepless nights where David now is in some major turmoil. We begin to see flowing from the pen in Psalm 51, David's prayer. And he prays for forgiveness. And what this psalm does for us, as we now read it in 2019, it gives us some insight to David's spiritual recovery. See, David was in a place where he was arrogant and callous. And by the way, it's easier sometimes to do that, right? It's not my fault. Or, you know what, enough time has passed, I've just kind of calloused, I've gotten hardened over it. And so he, he deals with this recovery that he takes himself from arrogance and, and this place of spiritual calledness, and he begins to deal with it. And so here's a few highlights as we kind of close down this series and enter into Easter week, which I think is the perfect bridge for this. I'm going to start in verse 3 
I want to encourage you on your time this week to read the entire psalm. We're just going to highlight a few things. Verse 3, after this conversation now with Nathan, here's what he says. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you, God. He's talking about God and you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge me. David now has eyes wide open. He's fully aware of the issue and what he's going to do is what every single one of us has to do. we got to tackle this thing head on because he knows because he's already been dealing with some of the lasting, lingering effects. And while he hasn't shown it out here, David still has a pillow. And every time he laid his head on that pillow, he knew. Now all of a sudden it's aware, it's out, word is out what David has done. It's not just a mistake against others. Yeah, the mistake was costly to Bathsheba. It was definitely costly to Uriah. But that was not the biggest mistake. The biggest mistake, the greater mistake, the greater wrong was against God. And this is what David sees now. David's like, oh my goodness, I have not just stolen a man's wife. I've not just lied and committed murder. I have wronged the God, the Lord I love deeply. And he recognizes this. And this is kind of the beginning place, I think, in order for us to begin to deal with our mistakes, in order for us to begin to use a big church word to deal with our sin, we got to realize that when I sin, I don't just break a rule. I break the heart of God. And when that begins to sink in, because that's what David was hit with head on. David, you didn't just break rules. You didn't just break up a marriage. You trampled on the heart of God. And I know, David, that means something to you. And as a follower, that means something to you. In these moments, a God who considers me valuable, a God who loves me deeply, who wants the best for me, when I think of it in these terms as David has that, oh my goodness, I'm not just aware of my transgressions and what that has cost you. I have trampled on the heart of God and I've got to deal with this. David's like, this is a bigger issue than just what is happening consequently out here. This is a major issue. This is a life and death issue. This is a relational value between me and God. This is big stuff, and i got to deal with it. And here's the thing. If we don't deal with this, we can't deal with the other. We've got to understand what God feels and what he's done for us in order to ever deal with the stuff that's lingering back here consequently in the earthly realm of this. It's a spiritual issue, and the spiritual issue, when made healthy, when healed, will begin to heal and make right some of the physical issues. So he chases after this forgiveness. David says, I'm going to chase after the heart of God. I'm going to do it first. And, and, I, and David gets it. He goes, I've got to do this first. I've got to reconcile this first because what happens in this is that there is going to be an unleashing of power and forgiveness in other areas of my life. And so if I can again be made hold here, then I can begin to turn with the power that God's going to unleash in me and begin to make some things whole in other areas of my life. I can begin to make whole myself. I can begin to make whole my relationships that I have maybe ruined and destroyed and think is beyond repair. I can begin to heal some of the things, bring reconciliation to some of those things. See, our power to forgive, but also our power to be forgiven, 
to receive that forgiveness of others is going to be fueled by an understanding of God's forgiveness of us. And so that's why David starts where he starts, and that's what he chases. So how does he begin the chase? Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, blot out my mistakes, blot out my my sin, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here's what David says, seeking forgiveness begins with asking for mercy. David, the king, who on a daily basis, every time he moves around the city, People are crying, have mercy. Throw us some bread, throw us a coin. Have mercy on us, King David. Now he is in a position where he's having to say, Lord, have mercy. It starts here because he unfolds this and he says, I'm going to start, God, by asking you for mercy because I recognize that you, God, are a God of unfailing love and of unfailing compassion. See, all throughout time, David knew Scripture. David knew God. It wasn't that David was a godless man. He knew who God was. He knew the heart of God. He knew the characteristics. He knew the the integrity in which God operated among his people. See, God for all of time had revealed himself as those things. If you go all the way back to when the law was given to Moses, Moses himself says that God is what? Compassionate and gracious, another word for merciful. And he goes on to say that God is slow to anger. That's why David says, God, according to your unfailing love. What David's saying there is, I know that your love is unfailing because I've seen it. I've experienced it. So all I'm asking for is for one more time in this place, in this situation, under these circumstances, God, will you? God, I know your heart. I know it from past experiences. I know it from Scripture. I know it from my forefathers. I know that you are a God of great compassion and gracious and merciful and slow to anger. David says, I know, God, it's not about what I deserve. I know what I deserve. You would be justified in what you do. But I'm asking you, God, will you have mercy? What David is doing is he's saying, God, I'm putting trust in the unchanging heart and character of you, God. Your heart, your character is one of great mercy, of great forgiveness, of great compassion. God, will you come through one more time? God, I know who you are. God, I know that you have the character and the willingness and the desire to remove my mistakes, to clean up my mess. That's why he says, God, will you you blot it out? It's a term there where he's talking about, he says, will you wipe it away? It literally means to erase from the book. God, will you just dry erase it? Will you wipe it away? Verse 7, he says, will you cleanse me with hyssop? Now, that's kind of weird. And and here's what happened ceremonially. Anytime someone had leprosy, they were taken out of town, out of community, couldn't be in contact with anyone. And if they were ever healed by some miraculous event, if they were healed from, from, from their leprosy, the final thing that would happen is that the priest would come and they would make sure and they would cleanse them with this hyssop. And once they were cleansed with that, guess what? Then they were allowed to return back into normal society. And he says, I can't move unless you cleanse me, God. I want to be returned back into normal society. I want to make sure that we are in good standing. And you are the high priest, God. So will you cleanse me 
in this moment? Will you wipe away? It carries with it this concept of, God, will you cancel my debt? And here's the good news is that God still does this. God continues to do this. He continues to cancel debt. He does it through Jesus. Paul, a New Testament writer, a follower of Jesus, wrote these letters to these churches. He writes one to this church in Colossae. And listen to what he says. I'm going to put it on the screen. He says, God made me alive with Christ. He forgives us of our sins. And then look at verse 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Canceled, blotted out, wiped away our sin, our mistakes, our past, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, God didn't just do this for Moses. He didn't just do it for David. And guys, we could spend the rest of the day walking through Scripture. He does it for me. He does it for you. He does it for us. God does this because that's what God does. But here's where David had to make the shift. And it's where you and I have to make the shift. It's one thing to know God can do those things. It's one thing for, for, for David to know that he had done it for a forefather or in another moment, or another area of life. It's another thing for us to believe that God can do that. We've got to get to a place when we are sitting on the couch with the, with the slingshot under the cushion. We've got to believe that God can do those things. That God is willing to do those things. God desires to do those things. That God, when asked, delivers those things. See, me believing in his willingness to forgive, that's where the healing is found. That's where second chance is found. That's where being able to take a step that you didn't think was possible, that's where reconciliation is found. That's where the restoring of some things that you think is, are beyond mend and repair, that's where that is found. But here's what I found. That's a major obstacle for most of us because we have a hard time believing that God either A, can do those things, or more often than not, we have a hard time believing that God would do those things because I'm simply too far gone. My past is too bad, Jason. Well, let me ask you, and maybe it does. It's good news if it is. You committed adultery, got someone pregnant, lied, had someone murdered, and then took them for your wife because God dealt with that. And I don't know where your sin, ball, and chain kind of, but I'm going to guess it probably isn't in that list. And so if God can do these things in the past, we've got to believe and trust and acknowledge and chase after that God will do those again. If he's been compassionate and gracious, merciful, Back here, he'll do it again. And here's why. Because he wants to create something better. Verse 10, David says, God, create in me a pure heart, O God. Meaning that I can't go 
create it myself. I can't go purchase it. I can't just like get a new heart and there we go. He says, no, you, God, have to create. He says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast from me your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. God, God that's, that's terrifying. See, guilt and shame now has been coupled with this fear. God, I'm afraid that you might do these things, even though I, I'm trying to get to a place where I know that you want, but God. And then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me your spirit. Here's what David is asking. God, will you take my humility, my acknowledgement of what I have done, my crying out for mercy, will you create anew what sin has robbed? See, David's sin had robbed him. It had affected his whole person. It, it affected his eyes in the way that he saw the world and the way he saw God. It affected his mind. It affected his ears. He wouldn't listen to anyone. It affected his voice. He didn't have a voice with certain people. It had affected his spirit, his heart. A moment of pleasure had devastated his whole existence. And now he's at this place where he says, God, I need you to do something you, only you can do. I can't do these things. Will you make me new? Will you create? Will you give me a new mind, body, soul? God, will you take care? Will you help me through the physical, emotional, and spiritual? So here's what David does. He gets humble and he gets hopeful. God, I'm humbling myself because I am hopeful that you will do what I know you can do. David uses these words like renew, don't take away, but give me more. God, will you restore? These are all requests of things that are out of his control. I'm just going to tell you, you ought to have a frequent flyer on this verse. This verse ought to sit on your nightstand, taped to your mirror, God, every morning. Create, renew, restore. God, tomorrow, create, renew, restore. God, will you do those things? Will you continue to deliver on these renewals? God, I know life is going to throw punches, and sometimes I'm going to punch back, and it's not going to lead. It's going to be self-inflicted, and sometimes it's not. God, I'm praying like my life depends on it. God, will you create? Will you renew? Will you restore? Not just ours, but God, will you then use me to affect other people? You guys realize that our level of joy will affect the level of joy that we're able to minister with others. You can't share something you don't have. And so we minister to others out of our own joy. And so, God, I need you to renew my joy so that I can minister to others out of that joy. And so what we find in this is that forgiveness frees us from the burden in our own lives, but it sets us up to impact the lives of others living under the same burden. Watch the flow. Verse 13. Then... After you've created, renewed, restored, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners can turn back to you. Verse 15, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. He says, God, I want you to do these things so that I can go and tell others how good you are. God, you are faithful and you are loving and when others go, well, but you don't know, Jason, I've done too much. David says, oh, no, you don't have a clue. Let me tell you about what God did for me. And if he can forgive me, he can forgive you. He is merciful. And God, I will open my mouth and I will begin to tell my story as your story. And I will make your grace the centerpiece of that. David's like, God, I know what I deserve, but I also know what I have been given. And it has changed my life. 
And David understands that I can't buy this. And, and, and tune in for this. Just, you can't buy it. You can't put enough money in the red box today that will buy what we've talked about. David says, I can't earn it. Guys, you can't serve enough hours. You can't do enough good in our community to earn it because it's a gift. And David says in verse 16, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. He says, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, otherwise I'd burn the house down. He says, no, my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, will you not despise? Here's what he's saying. God, I know what you want most, and that's what I'm willing to give you. It's not me doing more stuff. It's not me giving more, showing up more. God, no, what you want is my heart. David says, I'm coming and I'm giving you a broken, contrite heart. And I don't want you to confuse that. See, there's a counterfeit version of brokenness too. God doesn't want you to live brokenhearted. See, there's a counterfeit version of a broken heart that brings about all sorts of discouragement and, bitter and bitterness and despair. Those don't lead anywhere. What David's talking about, God, is I, I have a broken and contrite heart. I have a heart that knows this. I have a heart that knows how little it deserves but also how much it's been given. And David says, that is the heart I'm bringing to you. God, I know how little I deserve. But man, I am glad that you have given me more than that. And that is the humility in which he seeks and the gratitude. See, I, I can know both. And so as we land this morning, here's, here's kind of where I want to go with this. I know how lost I was. Or maybe for you, I know how lost I am. But that shouldn't keep me from knowing the second part of that. I can also know how much I'm loved. I can know how lost I was in the past but I can live life knowing how much I'm loved in the present. And that's the difference maker. And what it does is it gets me out of myself where everything seemingly and endlessly seems to have to be constantly looking at myself where I begin to say, God, I'm not going to look at how bad I am. I'm going to look at how good you are. And God, you are compassionate. You are gracious. You are slow to anger. And your unfailing love. And here's what my lips will open and say. To you, God, who has forgiven me, cleaned me up, created me with newness. And God, you have unleashed your spirit within me. God, to you, I will declare my praise. And I will seek to impact the lives. No matter how bad you think you are. Can I just tell you this morning that God's desire and willingness to forgive you is bigger. We're going to spend just a moment today, a little bit different than we normally do. I just want to spend a moment praying for you. Is that okay? But I want to do this also at the, the presence of our shepherds. 
if you're new here, we, we have some people that uh, we deem as shepherds. They're my shepherds. They're your shepherds. So I'm going to ask at this time, they're just going to kind of spread out. There'll be a couple down here and in the back. And they are people that um, I trust. And they are people that are here to help you fight your battles. They're here to pray for you. They're here to help you walk through and understand these levels and depths of forgiveness that God can give to you regardless of your level or depth of shame and guilt. They can answer questions about who Jesus is and why he matters and what he does. And so we're going to sing a verse in just a second. I want you to take an opportunity before we get to the tables. I want you to just take an opportunity to to maybe say, hey, I got to start I got to start the process because I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure how much longer I can go carrying some of this guilt and shame. And I'd like to believe that God can do it. I know he did it for someone else. I'm hearing what you're saying in Psalm 51. I know he did it for David, but I'm not there. Well, just take a step and see what happens. That's what I did. I got up and hit that first step lip quivering tears rolling down my face and I climbed that flight of stairs that I thought was a thousand steps high one step after the other I got to the top of the steps and I opened the door took a right sitting at the table was my grandmother, who, by the way, sweetest lady I've ever known. And I remember walking up to her, my heart pounding out of my chest, tears rolling down my face. I was no longer afraid of the punishment. I was afraid of the disappointment. And I said, Memo, I'm from Kentucky. That's what we call her. So I didn't mean to. But, and, 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 and she stopped me and she said, sweetie, it's okay. I forgive you. By the way, I was out throwing some scraps off the side of the porch. I saw you do it. She said the only thing I was wondering was how long you were going to lock yourself in the basement. I wonder how long some of us are going to continue to lock ourselves in the basement. Sitting on the cushion, hiding the slingshot, missing out on the beauty that was the day. I'm just telling you, you don't have to lock yourself in the basement. All you got to do is take one step on the first step and follow that up with a second. And I know without a doubt God is sitting around his table. And because he knows your heart, you know, he even tells us in Scripture, he says that, that the Holy Spirit has a way of making groans when we don't have words. So before you can ever get anything out of your mouth, God's going to go, hey, I got you. And by the way, I saw you when you did it. And my love for you never changed.
get outside and enjoy the day. Don't shoot at the window anymore. Get out there and enjoy the day. Stand with me. Like I said, our shepherds are around if you want to be prayed for this morning, but I'm just going to pray a few prayers and feel free to move if you want to seek that opportunity of prayer, but I'm just going to pray for us. We're going to sing a verse and you can continue that. But Father, this morning, will you be a God who who don't, who doesn't just sit at the table, but God, I guess I'm going to ask that for some people in this room, God, will you come down the steps and, and, and just meet them halfway? Will you meet them all the way, God? For those of us who have experienced your goodness, God, will, will you allow us to put another step in front and, and, and begin to return and pursue and seek you? God, I want to pray for forgiveness. First and foremost, God, I want to pray for forgiveness of not always representing you in this world as both individually but also as a church, God. I want to pray that you forgive us for not showing and extending the mercies and graces that you have extended to us. So God, would you forgive us of those things? God, I want to pray individual forgiveness. I want to pray for forgiveness of people that, God, it has been locking them in the basement. It has been weighing them down, God. It is to the point that they're doing everything they can to just survive and breathe. God, would you release them? Would you free them today? Would you clean their heart? Would you purify that? God, would you, in this moment, in this space, God, would you renew them? Would you, would you restore to them the joy of their salvation? God, for those that don't know you yet, God, would, would you give them the courage to just ask a question? Who is Jesus? God, for those that know you, God, would you allow them to just make that next step and say, hey, I, 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 need, to, I need to begin to surrender God, I want to seek baptism. I want to seek that next step. God, I want to seek more of you because I know that when I seek more of you, that God, you deliver. So you fill me. And when you begin to fill me, that's where renewal and restoration comes. God, it's not by going to church more. It's not by giving more or doing more. It's by positioning ourselves in belief, God, that you are Father, I just pray as prayer will circulate this room in just the next minute or so, God, I pray that, God, you will do what you do because it's what you've always done. The spirit of forgiveness will be released in this place as we sing, as we open our mouths and praise your name, God. I pray that we come to this altar where forgiveness and mercy is found.